a congregation made up primarily of uh, ethnically Jewish people uh, who are walking faithfully with Jesus to continue walking with their Messiah. And the writer is going to great lengths to show all the ways that this Jewish Christian congregation should be encouraged because of all the ways Jesus has fulfilled the long-awaited promises that were recorded for them in Scripture. So he's shown how Jesus is the greater prophet than Moses. Uh, He's going to go on to show how Jesus is the great high priest above all priests. Uh, And he's going to move through how Jesus has purchased for all Christians through his death and resurrection their redemption. Uh, And so we're just going to pick up right in the middle of that uh, in Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7. The writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore... As the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament that uh, this Hebrews passage was referring to, we see God again and again disciplining his people and yet never forsaking them, never abandoning them. And eventually he did lead his people into the promised land. And I'll just tell you, I don't know that this passage is saying anything about the eternal destinies of those individuals that didn't get to enter the physical promised land. I just know that this is talking about uh, the rebellion in this life that happened in their early lives. And the relationship God has had with his people where he comes to them, cares for them, loves them, and sometimes they obey and sometimes they rebel continued throughout the rest of the Old Testament and is still going on today. And we're going to look at one of those more rebellious eras in our history. And it is our history today. As we turn once again to Second Chronicles, today looking at all of chapters 22 through 24, which starts on page 374 of the Blue Pew Bibles. 
Now, if you're wondering why are we doing all of this, it's because we're moving through a sermon series through the books of Chronicles, Revived, Reformed, Reclaimed, Returned. And if you were with us last week, uh, we saw Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, beginning a downward trend in the behavior of the kings, or continuing a downward trend, in the behavior of the kings of Judah. Uh, and sadly, that trend is going to take a real downward turn today. Now, we're going to do something a little bit out of the ordinary, uh, because if you've been here when we've looked at these larger passages, we'll often summarize parts of the text just for time's sake as we move through the sermon, but as I studied this text, I found there was very little that was actually summarizable. <laughs> so I'm going to pray and let you be seated, and we're going to read the whole text, which is going to take over 20 minutes. Now, I'm not going to do it all at once. I am actually going to stop and make some comments and ask some questions as we go. But most of the sermon today is just me reading these three chapters. <laughs> so, all that I have read to you from Hebrews and all I'm going to read to you from Second Chronicles is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All men are but dust, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord which is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord stands forever. So let's pray. Father, you are a gracious God. For if you weren't, none of us would be here today. You are a gracious God. For if you weren't, you would have long ago righteously forsaken your rebellious people. You are a gracious God, for if you weren't, we wouldn't have this text to show us that even when your people rebel, you will accomplish all that you promise for those whom you love with an unfailing love. Help us see your grace even in the midst of remembering what a mess your people are. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we dig into this, anyone uh, watched House of Cards? West Wing? Okay, Suits? All right, you're not TV people, I get it. So, there's all these television shows that deal with... Um, basically political intrigue and the drama of government systems or inner office politics. And there's always backstabbing and occasionally murder. And they ain't got nothing on the Bible, okay? <laughs> you want some drama? It's going to be here today. And I want to remind you as we read this, this is not something that happened a long, long time ago that does not matter for us today. This is our family history. We, the church, are the continuation of God's people, Israel. So today, God's Israel is not some country in the Middle East. It is the worldwide church. And that is important because it means that when we Christians read the history of Judah... We are as much reading our own family history as if you were hearing stories at a family reunion or reading American history, assuming you're American, an American citizen. And the chronicler at this point is continuing to trace the poison brought into the family system of Jehoshaphat by his alliance with the royal house of the north, 
the house of Ahab. Remember that a couple sermons back? Uh, If you weren't here, I'm sorry you can't remember it, but uh, it's important. (laughs) Uh, Basically, the family of Judah married, which is the southern kingdoms on a map, had an intermarriage with non-Yahweh worshipers from the north, and it has created havoc. And if you were here last week, Pastor Mike mentioned that Jehoshaphat had gotten a wife for one of his sons from this house of Ahab, and that poison that came in from the house of Ahab is continuing to spread throughout all of Judah. And so as we look at Ahaziah, the first ruler of the southern kingdom, uh, with genealogical connections to the northern kingdom, we're going to see things start to fall apart. So with that as a preface to what's about to happen, 2 Chronicles 22, starting in verse 1. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, Jehoram's youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. Most of the kings of Jerusalem at least get seven years, maybe 20 years, maybe 40 years, one year. I just want that to be emphasized. Uh, Continuing in verse 2, his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab uh, to whom Jehoram got married. And his mother... Uh, Ahaziah's mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. And Ahaziah did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Wherever you see Lord in all caps, that's sort of Bible translator code for the proper name of God, Yahweh, uh, which we have a tradition of saying in our church. Uh, as, so he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh as the house of Ahab had done. For after the death of His father Jehoram, the house of Ahab, became Ahaziah's counselors to his undoing. Verse 5, he even followed their counsel and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Now, you may be confused now. This is a different Jehoram. (laughs) Gotta love the Old Testament. So this is a different guy named Jehoram. In fact, the rest of the text is going to call him Joram. So that's confusing. So... Ahaziah followed their counsel and went with Joram, the son of Ahab, uh, king of Israel, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramath-Gilead, which, if you will think back several chapters, was exactly what Jehoshaphat and several other kings have done and failed to do several times over, even though God told them to knock it off. So the Syrians wounded Joram, and Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that he had received at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was wounded. So Ahaziah has done what his advisors from the house of Ahab and his mother have told him, and he repeats the sin of Jehoshaphat that started this whole disastrous cycle years before. 
And so Joram, who this text first calls Jehoram, but so don't get confused, Joram of Israel, the northern kingdoms, is still comically trying to recover the city of Ramoth-Gilead from the Arameans just as Ahab had done. And Ahaziah, not so comically, repeats the folly of Jehoshaphat by joining with his cousin to the north. Now, Jehoshaphat escaped from the battle by crying out. He cried out and God delivered him because otherwise he was good. But Ahaziah cannot escape the Lord's vengeance. Ahaziah put himself in harm's way by being faithful to a covenant with a hater of God. Now, I know Proverbs 15, verse 22 says, without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. And that is true. But all advice must be compared to the word of God. There is a reason that even when the apostles themselves who gave us the New Testament went out preaching, some, like the noble Bereans, searched the scriptures day after day to see if these things were true. And we also must be careful that we seek much counsel, get much advice, and always make sure that that advice is in concert with the Word of God. And that's difficult and time-consuming, but the, in James, uh, God said, James says, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him pray to the Lord who gives graciously to all without rebuke. So, we should trust people. We should seek counsel. But when we are trusting people without asking where are they coming from and how does their advice match up with God's word, we're in a bad place. And that's where Ahaziah was at. So picking up in 2 Chronicles 22, verse 7. But it was ordained by God. It was ordained by God. That means God was somehow, mysteriously, without being the author of sin, in control. It was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come about through his going to visit Joram. For when he came there, he went out with Jehoram to meet Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom Yahweh had appointed to destroy the house of Ahab. And when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he met the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who attended Ahaziah, and he killed them. He searched for Ahaziah, and Ahaziah was captured while hiding in Samaria. And Ahaziah was brought to Jehu and put to death. Now they buried him. For they said, he is the grandson of Jehoshaphat, who sought Yahweh with all his heart. Still benefiting from his granddad's legacy. But the house of Ahaziah had no one able to rule the kingdom. So the legacy and the benefits of that legacy have continued down to Jehoshaphat's grandson. And I want to tell you, you might remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the damage that we can do to our children or that some of us may have received from our own parents uh, when there is harshness and no praise of any kind 
uh, in order to show them how God is a parent. And as Pastor Mike talked about last week, our, uh, our actions can often have consequences for generations and generations. But now I want to show you the flip side. Because what we see here is that even when you've been a good parent, even when you were a man after God's own heart, kids don't always follow their parents or grandparents. Sons don't always follow their fathers. And it is possible that you have done everything right. And that child that has all those problems and gone off the rails is not your fault. Because as Ezekiel says, we each will be held accountable for our own sins. While our parenting certainly makes a difference, the fact is, Every child makes their own choices. And so if that's you, if you're looking at your children weeping, and you're brokenhearted, I hope you know that there's some sort of solace knowing that maybe it isn't your fault because everyone is responsible for their own sins. And I just want to tell you, where there is life, there is hope. I... There is a fantastic scene from Doctor Who. We've already discussed how you're not television people, but obviously I am. And the doctor is talking. The doctor is a space alien with two hearts who travels through space and time um, and saves planets. And he looks at someone and he says to them, where there are tears, there is hope. And I I think that's a true insight. Where there is life, there is hope. Where there are tears, there is hope. Keep weeping. Keep praying. For God saves our children. Chapter 22, verse 10. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeath, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus, Jehoshabeath, the daughter of King Jehoram and wife of Jehoiada the priest, so pay attention there, right? This is probably a half-sister of this kid she saved, who has then married a priest, Because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah, his mom, who was looking to kill him. (laughs) His grandmother, rather. So that she did not put him to death. And this child, Joash, remained with them six years, hidden in the house of God, while Athaliah reigned over the land. So this is just more of those consequences that started back uh, when Jehoshaphat made an unholy alliance having one of his sons marry a non-Yahweh worshiper. We've said it over and over again, but it keeps coming up in the text. The Lord, I don't think this is an issue here, but it's in the text, so I just, I gotta say it. The Lord has, has no problem with, uh, uh, with uh, what we might call inter-race marriage. Black, white, uh, you know, whatever. That's, he just doesn't care. He's, he's pleased with Christian marriages. What he's concerned with is interfaith marriages. 
Christians are called to marry Christians. And when we don't, it has serious consequences for our marriages, for our churches, for our children. And it is creating havoc for God's people that had consequences for the better part of a century. Now, kids. By the way, all of us, everybody here has a mom and a dad. So we're all kids. I'm a big kid, what can I say? Good parents, as we've already said, can beget bad children. But uh, the piety and the piety of the previous generation cannot increase our moral credit. On the other hand, friends, who've had bad parents can beget good children. And I say that because the impiety of the previous generation cannot be used to excuse our moral debit. That is, guys, we cannot use the sins of the generations before us as an excuse for our sins today. We are responsible to repent from generation to generation. And so if you see sins in your own parents, you have a duty to repent of those in your own life. Chapter 23, starting in verse 1. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage and entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Ishmael, the son of Jehohanan, Azariah, the son of Obed, Maasiah, the son of Adaiah, and Elishaphat, the son of Zikri. And they went about through Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel. And they came to Jerusalem, and all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And Jehoiada said to them, Behold, the king's son, let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. This is the thing that you shall do. Of you priests and Levites who come off duty on the Sabbath, one-third shall be gatekeepers. And one-third shall be at the king's house, and one-third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of Yahweh. Let no one enter the house of Yahweh except the priests and ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy. But all the people shall keep the charge of Yahweh. The Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever enters the house shall be put to death. Be with the king, and when he comes in, be with the king when he comes in, and when he goes out. The Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath, with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss the divisions. And Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains the spears and the large and small shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he set all the people as a guard for the king, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house. 
And then they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him. And they said, long live the king! The Davidic line was not maintained by the merit of David's successors, but by the faithfulness of God. That's the point of all that reading. (laughs) The Davidic line was not maintained by the merit of David's successors, but by the faithfulness of God. Look all the way back up at verse 3. Behold the king's son, let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. Right? God was arranging all of this, just as God had ordained it (laughs) for uh, Ahaziah to die. So God ordained a priest to be there to protect this child who could not protect himself. The king is not put in place by his own power, but by God's preservation. And were it not for God's mercy to David and respect for his promises that he has been making and been continuing, David's dynasty would have suffered the same fate as Saul's family. If you know the story all the way back, before the first proper king of Israel, David, was king, there was another king, King Saul, who was not the chosen king. And he was chosen wrongly because the people wanted a big, strong king rather than taking the king that God ordained for them. But God is faithful. And what the reliable God says, the reliable God does. And speaking of the faithfulness of God, the letter to the Hebrews says, and we've already read it, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. So, when you see things in your life, and listen, I want to be clear, God does not promise health, wealth, or what we Americans think of as happiness. But when you see things in your life that threaten love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you are capable of bearing. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. The promises of God are that his people will always be preserved. And so... Chapter 23, picking up in verse 12. When Athaliah heard the noise of people running and praising the king, she went into the house of Yahweh to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance. And the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And the singers with their musical instruments leading in the celebration. If you were in Sunday school, this, you should be having visions of Psalm 47 in your head, right? <laughs> Sorry, it was a really fun Sunday school. You guys should come. It's, it's a blast. Uh, right, we were talking about how when we are truly excited, we start making some noise. And when we know God's king is coming, when we are worshiping our God, there's rejoicing and blowing trumpets. But Athaliah was not excited. Rather, the end of verse 13 says, She tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! 
Verse 14, then Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains who were set over the army, saying to them, bring her out between the ranks, and anyone who follows her is to be put to death with the sword. For the priest said, do not put her to death in the house of Yahweh. Right, so he's caring about the holiness of God's house. There cannot be murder in his temple. So they laid hands on her, and she went into the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, and they put her to death there. Verse 16. And Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be Yahweh's people. There it is. When a good king is in place, when a good priest is in place, when a good prophet is in place, when a good pastor is in place, when a good father and mother is in place, they are all about God's people being God's people. I think one of the greatest losses we have in our own lives is forgetting that we are God's people. That we might be Americans or any other nationality. We might belong to one group or the other, one party or the other. But what unites us in this church is we are God's people. And that trumps everything. Because we will not be Americans forever. And we won't be in our parties forever. And our groups won't last forever. But we will be God's people for eternity. So whatever that means for you to identify yourself, for you to find the core of yourself in being God's people, embrace that and let it lead your entire life. Verse 17. Then all the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And Jehoiada posted watchmen for the house of Yahweh under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of Yahweh to offer burnt offerings to Yahweh, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and with singing, there it is again, (laughs) according to the order of David. He stationed the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of Yahweh so that no one should enter who is in any way unclean. And he took the captains, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of Yahweh, marching through the upper gate to the king's house, and they set the king on the royal throne. Verse 21, so all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword. Remember, the book of Chronicles was not written when these events happened. Right, so this is probably maybe, probably getting into the 700s BC, so we're talking 2,700 years ago. But the Chronicles were actually written closer to 300 BC, so 400 years after these events. And they're actually recounting the same events that you would read about in Kings, but with a particular literary purpose. And that is remembering the line of King David from whom the Messiah is to come. And he's writing it to the Jewish people in exile. 
You got to remember, uh, all these bad things had happened, uh, and God's people had been kicked out of Jerusalem, and they no longer had their kingdom. There was no king on the throne. They was wondering, is there any hope whatsoever? Are all God's promises going to come to naught? Can we even trust God? Is Yahweh even real? And the chronicler is writing to them that the readers of Chronicles can expect the blessing of God only as they avoid involvement with the wicked and turn to the ways of renewed loyalty to God. The priests were to lead the way and all the people were to serve the Davidic king faithfully, even though they didn't really know who it was at that point. So they were to serve Yahweh, and if they did, the land of Judah would experience quiet once again. As Jehoshaphat had told them in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 20. Kids, 2020, right? 2020? 2020. Believe in Yahweh your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And as God had told the people in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That was the promise to them in exile. And it is still the promise to us today. Because we are still a people in the diaspora. I mean, just statistically speaking... Most of the people you see day in and day out, the other six days of the week, are not believers in Jesus. I mean, there might be a few exceptions, but for the most part, you're not. We are a people in the diaspora, constantly defining ourselves by Jesus, even in the midst of working out our daily lives. So what does that mean for us, you might ask? What is that to look like? Well, here, the instructions of God for living in the diaspora from Jeremiah 29, uh, where God wrote, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Obviously, wives from other Yahweh worshippers. Just to be clear, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. My friends, something I think we often forget is that when Jesus saves us from our sin, he does save us to be his servants in the kingdom, but he saved us so that we could pick up what we were meant to be in Genesis 1 and 2, to enjoy raising our families and to enjoy creating, uh, creating and cultivating the world. Chapter 24, verse 1. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of Yahweh, all the days, all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters. So God is setting up pins and knocking them down when it comes to reminding the people how his promises are going to be fulfilled. 
Joash is just like Moses before him, right? And, and like another king after him. Joash was a baby threatened like Moses, hidden and then brought into power in a way that only God could have accomplished. And Joash is once again a ruler in the line of David. So Joash embodies two of the principles of covenant history. He's Davidic and he's unlikely. We have to remember, God's ways are often very unlikely. Chapter 24, verse 4. After this, Joash decided to restore the house of Yahweh, and he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief, and said to them, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax established in Exodus, uh, levied by Moses, the servant of Yahweh, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? Verse 7. For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and also used all the dedicated things of the house of Yahweh for the Baals. So the house was empty. Verse 8, so the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of Yahweh, and proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for Yahweh the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought their tax and dropped it into the chest until they had finished. And whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers by the Levites, When they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. Thus they did day after day and collected money in abundance. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charged the work of the house of Yahweh, and they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of Yahweh, and also workers in irons and bronze to repair the house of Yahweh. So those who were engaged in the work labored, and the repairing went forward in their hands, and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, and with it they made utensils for the house of Yahweh, both for the service and for the burnt offerings, and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver, and they offered burnt offerings in the house of Yahweh regularly all the days of Jehoiada. Verse 15. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. Verse 16, and they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God in his house. So a priest buried among the kings. You know, that's a hint at something. Verse 17, now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, right? So now it's the bad people coming. And basically he's flattered by them. And so they abandoned the house of Yahweh. After all that work, ah! they abandoned the house of Yahweh. And they served the ashram and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Verse 19, yet... God sent prophets among them to bring them back to Yahweh. And these testified against them, but they would not pay attention. So this is the flip side of 2 Chronicles 7 14. Instead of humbling themselves and turning, they're getting verse, chapter, Chronicles 7 verse 19. 
But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, I will pluck you up from my land. We talked last week that not all bad things that happen are God's specific judgment on our sins. But when God's people start falling apart, it normally is God's judgment on God's people for not loving one another. There's no greater commandment, Jesus said. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he did a whole lot of emphasizing the Christians loving one another. And so the prophetic message to Joash makes it clear that in God's economy, the punishment always fits the crime. He has abandoned the Lord, so the Lord has abandoned him. Verse 20. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of Yahweh so that you cannot prosper? Because you've forsaken Yahweh, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of Yahweh. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him. He killed the son of the one who protected him. And when he was dying, Zechariah said, may Yahweh see and avenge. Now, I don't know if you caught this because it's hard to see in the English, but everywhere the word forsaken and abandoned come up, it's the same word in Hebrew, azav. It happens five times. They have abandoned Yahweh. Yahweh will abandon them. And we are back in the age of the judges where Israel swings wildly back and forth between devotion to Yahweh and idolatrous treason. Verse 23, and at the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Verse 24, though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, Yahweh delivered them into their hand, a very great army, because Judah had forsaken their Azav, forsaken Yahweh, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. God had abandoned, God, sorry, not God had abandoned, God had many times delivered Judah when they were clearly an inferior force, but now God is doing it the other way around as a judgment against his people. Just like the wilderness wanderings we read about in Hebrews. Chapter 24, verse 25, when they had departed from him, leaving him severely wounded, that is, leaving Joash severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed Joash on his bed. So he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. That's the final judgment on that line. Those who conspired against him were Zabad, the son of Shimeath the Ammonite, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith the Moabite. Accounts of his sons and of the many oracles against him and the rebuilding of the house of God are written in the story of the book of the kings. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. That leaves us in a pretty hopeless place as we come to the end of our reading today. God's people are a mess. And we don't know what the hope is. We should not be surprised when God brings, when God's people are a mess. But we also should not be surprised when God brings incredible good 
from really messy people. Because one of the covenant principles is God brings his promises to bear from unlikely places. God loves to do miracles. God loves to show grace. And God has consistently, throughout time, brought redemption, deliverance, and salvation from unlikely places. He did do things for his people through Joash, the imperfect king. He, and he did warn them through Zechariah, the fairly good but nonetheless ineffective executed prophet. God even raised up Jehoiada, who was prophet, priest, and king, but not one that ultimately saved the people. He died, and that was his end. But all of these do point to another baby who would be born hundreds of years later that we can read about in Matthew 2, who was also a king that, was, that people were seeking to kill him when he was a baby. He was just like Moses. And he would be saved. And he would grow up. And he would become a prophet. And ultimately he would be the high priest who made himself the sacrifice. The greater prophet, priest, and king, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way God has shown the ultimate grace to us all. Because he embodies all these principles in a perfect way. Because he ultimately was sinless. He was not a mess. And yet he died like the worst of criminals, taking the punishment and justice of God upon himself so that we, God's people, a terrible mess to not have to be treated like we are one. Jesus was forsaken and abandoned by God so that we who believe in him never will be. And Jesus was the one that all these people were waiting for. He fulfills all the hopes they had. And all those who believed in Yahweh, my friends, even if they were big mess-ups and died in the wilderness and rebelled, if they believed in Yahweh, we'll see them there too, praising Jesus with us because they are our family. This is our family history. And Jesus is the one that for all who believe in him, we can be confident that God is our God and he will never abandon us. God preserves his people to the end. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's, that's good news. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful. Thanks be to God. We praise you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.